Welcome to season two of What's the Tease? We're opening up the season with one of the top names in burlesque today, the Italian stallionette Angie Pontani. Welcome to the show, Angie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so good to hear from you. Coming to us all the way from Brooklyn, New York. Yep. <laughs> so you've obviously been based in Brooklyn for some time now. How did your time growing up in Trenton, New Jersey, facilitate your interest in vintage clothing, music, and movies? Well, growing up, I grew up in a really traditional Italian-American family. And like within that kind of social construct, everything is a production, right? Like everything's over the top. Mm -hmm. Everything involves lots of people. Everything is like a big celebration. Everything's a show in a sense. And my parents had an affinity for, you know, the, the styles and the entertainment of the 40s and the 50s. So I grew up listening to that type of music, watching MGM Technicolor musicals with my dad, who would be like, oh my God, look at that costume, it's amazing, look at that set, look at this <laughs> dance number. So that was kind of my first exposure, and, and to me that kind of just became this visual ideal that drove my personal style and taste. Oh wow, well that was very convenient. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Appearing in Dutch Weissman's Follies was your first foray into the burlesque world. And at age 17, what gave you the confidence to audition for this production? And what was it about this review that piqued your interest? Well, I, I don't think it was confidence. It definitely wasn't confidence. It was just kind of ignorant bliss. Like, well, <laughs> you know, Italian chutzpah. <laughs> yes, yes, Italian chutzpah. Like, I, I just have always had this kind of mindset that if I get an opportunity, I'm just going to take it. Even if I don't have the skills required to facilitate that opportunity, I will figure it out along the way. Um, and, you know, I moved to New York at 17. I went to NYU for a minute to study dance and theater, and I ended up dropping out. And I accidentally kind of fell into this show at Dutch Wiseman's, and I just... You know, a, a guy that I was working with was like, you know, you have to come and audition for this show. It's totally your style. It's like really vintage looking. And so I was just like, okay. So I just went and auditioned and I got the part and, and that was really it. I just took it and I was over the moon. I didn't even think that that type of entertainment still existed. Mm -hmm. So to, for it to find me like that was just such a gift, you know. It sounds very serendipitous. Yes. Yeah. Um, had you been dancing at all you know, that somebody suggested that, hey, this might be something you'd be into? Or like, was that just like by your outward appearance and nature that they were like, this is this is all you? It was just really my nature. I mean, I grew up dancing. I've, I've been training in dance since I was about four years old. Um, and I've always stuck with it. But um, they didn't know that really. It was just kind of like, oh my God, you have the look that's so right for this. And so that's just where I ended up. Truth be told, I was the absolutely the weakest dancer in the cast. I hands down, <laughs> no contest, I was the weakest dancer in the class, the, the, the in the whole cast. The choreographer Amy Goodhart would work with me like on off hours to help get me better. Because <laughs> the other girls were amazing. They were cruise ship dancers, they did mm -hmm. Broadway shows, they mm -hmm. were professional ballroom dancers, and I was just like, okay. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if that was just your humble opinion or if this was somehow substantiated in the class. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it was never spoken, but I know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so now that the burlesque bug had bit and the New York burlesque scene was gaining momentum, what was the thought process behind creating the highly stylized dance trio, the world famous Pontani Sisters? Uh, well, I'm really, I never have much of a thought process. It's again, I just kind of am a reactionary person. Um, and I, w- when I was in Dutch Wiseman's, I just loved it so much. You know, the costumes, being backstage, performing for different audiences every night. Like, this is where I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And this is the style of performance that I wanted to stay in. You know, at this point, I was still auditioning and going out for different shows and different parts and I would go to these auditions and I would just be like I don't even want to be in this show I don't want to wear a unicorn wear a a unitard and be like a tree in the background like doing Mm -hmm. modern dance like I want fake eyelashes I want a ridiculous costume like I had already seen this side that now I could there was no going back to pedestrian life Mm -hmm. um so when Dutch Wiseman's closed, I just kind of was like, well, I have to, I want to do another show like that. But there really wasn't another show like that. So that's what launched me to just start doing the Pontani Sisters. I, I wanted to create what I had come to love so much in a bit of a different form. You know, it was different, of course, but it maintained the same spirit stylistically. So how come it wasn't then that like after the Dutch Wiseman's, you were like, okay, let me try go solo for a bit you know you decided to instinctively form a troop yeah i did i don't know and, and you know what even in my solo life i i always do that if I, if someone wants to book me for a show i'll always be like hey you should book this person too and this person i don't know i like uh, having people around me in the performance world for some reason i think it it's very supportive and it, it helps me to be a better performer um but with the sisters i, I don't know i have no idea what caused me to do that i think <laughs> I just wanted to have a troupe vibe going on. Um, I love, I love choreographed dancing, like tight, tight group dances thrill me. Um, it wasn't my intention that that is all that I was going to do because I was doing solo striptease in Dutch Wiseman. I started out as a chorus line girl and then I just worked my way up and by the end of my run there I was doing solo acts but mm-hmm. you know I put the Pontani sisters together we started on the boardwalk in Coney Island and it was kind of like the response was so tremendous it kind of just pushed my solo career to the back because everybody wanted mm-hmm. the Pontani sisters and mm-hmm. it was instantaneous that we got all these opportunities so I just catered to the opportunities it's a little bit of your, um, well, I suppose this is a little bit of a stereotype, but that Italian-American, keep it in the family business. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's, it is a stereotype, but that one is pretty true for me. And I've done it my whole career. Like, the people that I work with are my family, and I work with them again and again and again. And you just develop that relationship that they are my family. They know my parents. They know my sisters. Everybody is, like, a, you know, part of the family. And I love that vibe. So before you entered Dutch Weissman's, what was your understanding of burlesque then? And then after Dutch Weissman's, had that changed at all? And what did it become? Well, I had no understanding of burlesque at that point in time. It wasn't a word that people were using. Um, 
the neo movement was starting to simmer up, but you know, all the dots weren't connected, you know, even in New York, you know, there were similar things happening at different clubs, but we didn't really even know each other truly at that time. Mm -hmm. So it was not a word that people were using to describe anything. And even in Dutch Wiseman's, which was so expressly a burlesque show and heavily inspired by other shows like Minsky's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it was a burlesque space. They didn't even use that word. Nobody knew what that word meant, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it really wasn't until I, we got a review in the paper and people said, oh, this is, you know, I think it was the Village Voice did an article, burlesque is back, you know. And then I Googled it and looked up the word and then it, it started to become something that people said. And I started to research it more and learn the history of what I was doing, of which I had a very limited idea. You know, my my comprehension of burlesque was pictures of Betty Page, you know, and the videos of Betty Page and Tempest Storm dancing around. That's that's all my only frame of reference that I had at that point. Mm-hmm. So the Pontani sisters are, of course, synonymous with the early days of the burlesque revival in New York City. How did go-go dancing find its place on the burlesque stage? Well, at that point, I've always loved go-go dancing. I love 1960s stylized dance. I think it, well, it is burlesque in a sense of evolution. You know, go-go dancers at that time were um, equatable to what a burlesque dancer would have been prior to that. And that style of dance that evolved from so many different influences that were happening at that time, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's part modern, it's part African, like, the, like really when you break it down, it has all these elements of pure true dance, but it also is just really ridiculous and kind of silly, and some of the moves are so funny, and the songs, and I just love that. I love, <laughs> I love not taking things too seriously, and of course I love the style of it, so I just relied heavily upon that style of dance when I started putting numbers together, and in New York at that time, there was like a really um, great scene for that. There were a lot of different clubs that had nights that where the music was like really 60s and it was go-go vibe. So mm-hmm. the Pontani sisters just got a ton of work doing that. But, you know, I, burlesque and go-go dance definitely do go hand in hand. They are certainly related. Mm-hmm. As part of your merchandise, you produced the 1960s style workout DVD series, The Go-Go Robics. People are often surprised by the physical intensity of a burlesque performance. What do you do as part of your fitness routine? Uh, I have, I work out about five days a week, um, and I am very much into lifting weights. I, I love to lift weights, and I try to um, do a kind of functional training that keeps me agile as well. Like maybe four days a week, I'll just jump rope for 15 minutes and then, you know, lift weights, uh, focusing on various body parts for about an hour. And then one day a week, I'll just do some like crazy cardio that I detest every second (laughs) just to keep my heart pumping. And that focuses more on quick movement just to, to keep going. Yeah. I never want to lose the physical intensity of any of my performances. And my kind of theory is like, well, if I don't stop, I won't stop, Mm -hmm. so I just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, being a mother and running around after a young child. Yes, absolutely. That keeps you very active as well, and that's another reason that I do it. You know, I had my daughter late in life. I was 38 when I got pregnant with Cecilia, Mm -hmm. so it's like, I'm like, okay, I'm an old mom. I'm going to, like, I have to keep on top of this. I have to stay fit. Like, I I have to be able to catch her, you know, I can't be (laughs) hobbling around. 
<laughs> That's cool. Oh, and I've seen your Instagram and some of the things you have done with uh, Cecilia over the years. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, like, both yourself and Lady Gaga star in documentaries that have five foot two in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a comment on the average height of Italian American women? <laughs> and that dynamite does indeed come in small packages. Yes, it absolutely is. You know, I mean, and I always say that my husband's like six, four, he's a giant. And I'm like, little people are the most powerful because you have to cram a lot into these little bodies. So we are just fully energized, you know, and it's like, yes, and no one in my family is like taller than five, seven, even the guys like we're all mm -hmm. tiny people. So it is definitely a commentary on that, that we're small, but we are, are definitely powerhouses. <laughs> I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, <laughs> as a co-producer of um, New York Burlesque Festival, which is one of the world's, well, it's the longest running um, festival um, mm -hmm. now in its 18th year and the largest festival in the world. It's what, over 100 performers over four days. Oh, yeah. We have in, in normal non-COVID times, mm -hmm. we usually have about 130 performers and it's over four days. Yes. Yeah, um, I've been for very fortunate enough to like travel to New York City specifically for the festival awesome. <laughs> twice. So like I've, I'd never seen so much palestine in my life, and every <laughs> every single moment I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, Great. <laughs> how did you meet your fellow producer Jenga Pay and decide to embark on this? Well, on creating this institution in the palestine world. Well, we, I had worked with Jen Gapay several years ago. It was probably about 19 years ago now. And she had started a festival here called the Siren Fest. That was a big outdoor music festival in Coney Island. And then we just started working together on different projects. She would uh, hire us for private parties and things like that. And then um, we just started talking because we both had a, a vision of doing a larger scale show. Mm -hmm. And we started to discuss that. And I said, well, let's do this big show here. Da, 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 da. And then she was like, you know, we should make it a festival. And then we were like, yeah, duh, we should definitely make it the New York Burlesque Festival. I mean, uh, New York has always been such a tremendous hub of burlesque activity, and it's New York, it's you know, showbiz capital of the world. Um, so we just decided to do it, and we had no idea um, that it would ever still be around 18 years later and have grown <laughs> to the scale that it did. I mean, when we started, it was two nights maybe 30 people in the cast, perhaps, in, in small venues, and it's just quadrupled in size. It's insane. Like, consistently surprised at when we get applications every year. You know, for the first probably 10 years of it, we knew everyone who was applying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a smaller scene. And now we get these applications, people that we don't know, we never heard of. And it's so exciting because it just shows how big this scene has become and how many players there are in it and people from all over the world. And it, it's a really exciting thing to be a part of. And I think we're so honored that people enjoy performing you know, on the stage that we provide so much that they come back again and again in the audience. It's really great. Yeah, I mean, when I look at the timeline actually of it, I'm like, you guys probably started that in what, 2002, 2003? Yes, yeah, yeah, I think it was 2002. Yeah, and that was actually quite early on in your burlesque career. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. In Well, yeah, yeah, really. And yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I've been around since about 1994, 1995. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, it was. And it was definitely early, early on in when the word burlesque was really being used um, and really picking up steam and moving in that direction. Cool. 
So do you have, I have to ask, you know, just for a little bit of tea, do you have an interesting story from the time you featured in Snoop Dogg's Snoopadelic Cabaret on New Year's Eve in 2014? <laughs> yeah, man, that was so crazy. I, so first of all, I was so thrilled when I got hired to do Snoop Dogg's show because I absolutely love Snoop Dogg. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was completely hilarious is I had just found out that I was pregnant which was a big old accident. So I'm doing Snoop Dogg show and it's like everything that you would imagine it would be. You are literally in a room that is full of pot smoke. Like <laughs> I, 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 and I was just freaking out because I was like, Oh my God, I'm pregnant. And the way the stage was, was that Snoop was like on the ground floor and mm-hmm. he was on this podium and he was DJing and doing his Snoop Dogg thing. And I was performing above him, like almost like a ladder, like went over and up around him. And that's where the performances would happen. So Snoop Dogg was below me smoking more pot than I've ever seen in my life. And all (laughs) the pot was coming right up to me, right above him, dancing and like four months pregnant. And I was freaking out. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) what am I doing? My baby. So yeah, my baby smoked pot with Snoop Dogg. That's a story you're going to tell on her 18th birthday? Yes, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) But also, like, how amazing as a woman that instinctively you go to, oh, my gosh, my child. um, Yes. Or rather, my pending child, as opposed to I'm on a ladder above inhaling secondary smoke. I'm getting a secondary high. Am I going to make it through this number? That definitely crossed my mind, too. I was like, I think I'm definitely stoned, and I'm going to fall off this ladder. That was very scary. (laughs) Crazy, but also what a moment. Oh, yeah. No, it was a great moment, and I have some fun pictures of it. And I was doing, like, a fan dance, and my fans are really heavy, and I was like, I'm going to fall right off this stage. Oh, but I didn't, luckily. Of course, consummate professional, as always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're no stranger to the realm of podcasts. The Pontani Pages podcast had quite an eclectic collection of guests from Lola Star to Talib Koli, and you guys covered diverse themes. What yes. was your inspiration behind this? You know, I had a friend, my friend Sunny, who was a producer, and I had done something with WMYC, which is a local program around here, and he saw that, and he was like, I think you would be a great podcast host. Um and so he was really the driving force behind that. And it was, I loved doing it. It was really fun. And I, I felt it to be really challenging as well because, you know, I can talk about the things that I know all day long, but we had guests and covered subjects that I know nothing about. And I found that to mm-hmm. be so intriguing and challenging, but I also loved it. You know, it was, it was a really great learning experience. Yeah. In the intro of your current podcast, The Bump and Grind with Angie Pontani, you make reference to having played in every room. Big rooms, ballrooms, <laughs> small rooms, every room except the mushroom. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. Uh, how does burlesque translate in those uncontrolled or rather uncurated environments where one doesn't normally expect to see a show of this nature and we so often find ourselves performing in especially in a scene that is growing yeah it's it's definitely true I mean when I look back on my career I have 
performed in every room except a mushroom. And with that line, too, I was like, we have to take this out. It's ridiculous. But then everybody's like, no, it's good to be ridiculous. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, but, you know, I think burlesque has a gift that it can transcend environments very well. It's something that you can do, like, at, on an outdoor stage at a summer festival here in New York or in a beautiful Broadway theater or in a small nightclub, in a ballroom, anywhere. And I think that there is an element of it that – where burlesque kind of like the fourth wall comes down with burlesque and that's the whole joy and beauty of it is the performer's connection with the audience. And so of course what I love playing on a big beautiful stage with a curtain where you can maximize the visual impact of your performance with lights and a mm-hmm. smoke machine and this you know all the bells and whistles all the bells and whistles the beauty of burlesque is you can take all those bells and whistles away and you become the bell and whistle Mm -hmm. and it has a shock value to it and kind of like this thing of like oh my gosh this is amazing i mean like I performed on department store floors, you know, mm-hmm. in windows of a Hugo Boss store. It can translate. And when it translates uh, to these different environments, it certainly changes a little bit, but it can be anywhere. Some of my favorite performances have been on dive bars with holes in the stage, you know. Yeah. So it, it's really just about the audience and the energy of the environment. But, I mean, I, I think that is... The, the great thing about it. And of course, like I said, I love being on a beautiful stage in a theater and having that magic, but there's a raw punk rock magic that I also thrive off of that I think you get when you get out of that traditional performance environment. So what do you think of um, corporate daytime? How does it translate in that realm? <laughs> well, that's, you know... <laughs> That translates into your bank account. That's what that translates into. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. You know, it can't all be sunshine. Um, yeah, no, I have done cor- I have done corporate events. I've performed at Bloomberg's offices here several years ago. I actually mm-hmm. got kicked out. Um, every performer eventually did. But that was tr- truly soul-sucking um, and terrible, but the money was good. So, you know, it's a business and you've got to – You've got to take from one to feed the other. So that's what the corporate gigs are there for. That's why you charge a lot more. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, just for that like fact that you, you don't have all the lights and stuff. It's just the daytime effect on heavy makeup, on, on oh, yeah. show makeup. <laughs> and, you know, you don't have... The audience did not pay to see you. Yes. They're not there to see a show. Yes. They're like at their corporate event and then there you are. So it's different because I, you know, I've had great daytime performances out in the bright sun, you mm-hmm. know, um, and it's amazing and I love it, but it's a different environment. When you cross into the corporate world, not everybody wants to see you. <laughs> and so that just creates the the difference in the, the emotion and the excitement level of the audience, yeah. which is ultimately what it all relies upon in any room yeah (laughs) so I mean I know that there is like no way to quantify this but what would you say is one of the achievements in your career that you are most proud of to date um I think what I'm when I I, there's been a lot of things and I'm certainly not done um but one of my Mm -hmm. greatest moments was when uh Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett were performing at Lincoln Center um they were doing their cheek to cheek concert and um they called me and they said you know we want you to dance in the show and we want you to pull together some dancers and I was like well can I pull anybody that I want like is there any restrictions on what I can do and they were like no you know get whoever you want like 
we just really wanted to be burlesque and reflective of what you did with the Pontani sisters and, and that whole kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. So I was so excited and I was able to get um, Kitten and Lou and the main attraction and this gal, Poppy Tar, um, who I don't think she performs anymore, but she was a burlesque performer at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was so proud to be able to pull together such a great group of br- true burlesque performers from the downtown scene, you know, mm-hmm. and have that diversity represented on stage at Lincoln Center with Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett and this like full giant orchestra. Like I was really excited to present the different body types, you know, and just the burlesque energy and and that I was really just so honored to do that. And once again, I was the worst dancer in the group. (laughs) Jeez, all these years later, you learn nothing. Come on. I'm always always the worst. (laughs) Unless I make up the dance, I'm the worst. (laughs) I mean, I, just, I listened to that podcast that you did with the Pontani sisters, with the other sisters, <laughs> and you guys said that at some point in your career, you have to give yourself credit. So what's this? Yes, yes. I, listen, I do give myself a lot of credit, but I'm, I'm not, like, I, even growing up, I was always in the back row at dance class. My skill set as a dancer, it exists, and there, it has a elements of athleticism in it and I can do drops and pops and hops and all this and that but when it comes to uh, intense choreography my feet and my brain have a delay that I just need a little bit more time than everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well as a result of um, the pandemic we've all had to look at our industry and especially those of us working in nightlife entertainment and envision a new way of working. What have you had to consider in your latest endeavor, the Belize Galaxy, when creating a project that is sustainable for now, but yet has longevity in this new era? Yeah, so when when this all started, it certainly started to reevaluate everything because it became very clear that, you know, I was supposed to, my husband and I have a show in Vegas and we were supposed to be out there um, most of this year. And of course, that just kept getting canceled and pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So ultimately, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do here? I've got to do something. And so with the Burlesque Galaxy Project, I was really lucky to be contacted by a bunch of, a, a bunch, a couple entertainment professionals that have worked in various uh, nightlife and theater productions here in New York um, that are also friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want to create this platform that will support virtual burlesque right now, right? Mm-hmm. Where we can bring everybody together and create a platform that's neat and efficient and clean and really helps to elevate the burlesque community and shine a light on it, especially right now, which is pretty, you know, as the burlesque community is like just not a lot of options to get out there and make yourself seen beyond, you know, social media or things like that. So we worked on developing a live theater that will screen shows, premiere shows. We can do classes through it. We can spotlight festivals through it. And Mm -hmm. also doing other things like performer directories where performers from all over the world can be spotlighted um, and resources. Like we've just Mm -hmm. started to add resources like booking contracts and, you know, how to measure yourself properly and what a, what a photo release should look like and things like that, that I think are so important and not everybody, so valuable and not everybody has access to these. Right. So, so they're all up there as well. And, you know, the long-term goal right now, of course, we're really pushing and compiling a lot of virtual content. Mm-hmm. We ran um, the Burlesque Festival through it. We're producing our own show called The Big Shebang, mm-hmm. where we travel around in a spaceship and feature performers from all over the world. That is and so we have, cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so funny. It's the so show's fun. ridiculous. 
But we're bringing in other content, too. Like, Lo Lesbo, G's Louise, and Lola Vanella are yeah, going to yeah. bring their show and screen it there. And we've got a lot of other stuff coming in. So, for right now, I feel like this is going to be a great opportunity. We've, like, figured out all the stuff so far. So now, like, if you want to bring your show to us, it's much easier. We've got our ticketing system. We've got music rights, you know. Mm-hmm. We've got it all figured out. Um, so that's a strong platform. And I think it's also opened the door for when this does end. And we get back into our theaters and back into our nightclubs. We also have the added bonus of now we can live stream those events. Or you can even tack on. Like Jen and I were saying for the New York Bless Festival next year, we hope that we are in a venue again. And even if we are, we plan still to supplement the show with some shows like this. So we have access yeah. to performers that couldn't come, you know, yeah. or, and, and be able to share it with people that can't attend. So I think it opens a door, and I do think that there is a sustainability because I think one thing that this year has taught us is that there's so much opportunity online. I mean, to be able to take a class with these legends and yeah. you know, it, it's, and see these shows that you would never see. So I, I think that that's the path going forward. I think it's truly inspired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, so well done on that. Thank um, you. <laughs> And besides the Burlesque Galaxy, I imagine that you're looking forward to getting back to that new uh, Las Vegas residency. What can we expect from Angie Pontani in the very near future? Well, yes, we are hoping to get back there and there are talks about getting back there. You know, I think this year has taught me one thing and is that like, I'll see it when I, I believe it when I see it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, everything just here is just gets pushed back, pushed back, pushed back pushback. Uh, there's so many variables that are so far beyond our control. Um, but yes, that is my plan for the near future is that we will be back in Las Vegas with our residency. And one of the bonuses of our show is that it isn't a smaller room. It's in a, a beautiful restaurant called the Nomad that seats about 200. So it, it's more of an intimate environment that would be mm-hmm. easier to control with the different procedures that we have to do to protect everybody right now Mm -hmm. so we'll see how that goes um but yes hopefully i'll be back in vegas real soon oh fantastic angie so with that i'd like to thank the bump and grind bombshell from brooklyn angie pontani for joining me on what's the tease thank you so much angie it has been an absolute honor your energy has given me new life for the season thank you thank you so much